What's up, my brothers and sisters? Welcome to the Fireground Fitness Podcast, where we talk about all things pertaining to life on and off the fireground. My guest today is a brother by the name of Eric Terry. He's a Phoenix firefighter, as well as a captain in the Army National Guard. We talk about his journey into the fire service. We talk about the National Guard, his deployment. We talk about leadership and a bunch of other stuff. I hope you enjoy. Eric, thank you for being a guest on the Fireground Fitness Podcast. Um, happy to have you. Had a great opportunity. We've had so many amazing conversations in the past, and um, and I think that uh, it's time, high time, that we <laughs> capture one and share it with the world because um, they will be edified for sure. Uh, anything we have to say will be rich, greatly rich, enriching to them in their lives. Right on. <laughs> so, um, no, so thanks, thanks for having me. I appreciate. It. I've been looking forward to this. Yeah, right on, man. Um, yeah, it took us a little bit to get us uh, get us all calendared up and, mm-hmm. and get our uh, schedules aligned. Yep. And but here we are. So tell me a little bit. We're going to talk about a bunch of stuff, but I want to I want to hear a little bit about some of your backstory. So um, having, yeah, I know you don't like run around with this published because. It, <laughs> There has to be a, an element of shame associated with this, but <laughs> there's some photos that uh-huh. you have yep. of you doing some body comp stuff. Yep. Um, so I want to talk about that because we need to unpack that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, you're an officer in the army and you're a firefighter of what, I think, what, five or six years now? Six years now. Yep. Congratulations. Thank you. And um, you're about to hit your seven year itch. So, um, <laughs> so I want to talk about some of the lessons that you've learned during the course of these things and, um, you know how maybe your fitness has evolved yeah. and, and, and changed and uh, more targeted toward the fire service or what have you mm-hmm. and, um, you know, what your thoughts are on that. And, yeah. and I want to talk about like, you know, the, the lessons learned as an army officer and, and how you apply those in your life, how mm-hmm. you apply those to your work in the fire service, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So let's start with those gorgeous pictures okay. of you, <laughs> which I will probably, if you'll let me, I'm going to yeah. share one on Instagram. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Just no, make you sure look you tag f- me in it so anyone who likes that can creep on them afterwards. There you go. So let's be clear. You <laughs> yeah. look fantastic. Your 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 physique was wonderful. Mm-hmm. You were all bronzed up. <laughs> what what took you down that path? What got you going down that kind of bodybuilding? So the, the main thing was um, I was always big into lifting, going to the gym. Um, and after high school, I did a bunch of sports in high school. I did wrestling, football, cross-country track. There was kind of a void as far as the competition piece goes to where uh, I always wanted to do something where I felt like I was being competitive again. And I also wanted to learn more about the diet nutrition side of things. Cause I felt like I was just, you know, the meathead going to the gym, trying to eat cheeseburgers all day and get huge. And I was getting big, but like big everywhere. Mm. Um, so I wanted to be able to train smarter while also be able to work towards something. Um, and the gym I was going to at the time, they actually had a, a competition team that specialized in that. So I was like, okay, I should probably get into it. And I actually ran the idea by a friend of mine who I've been thinking about it for years. And then she signed up the day after I told her. And I was like, what's my excuse? You know, I've been talking <laughs> about this for years now. I might as well just jump into it. Right. Um, so I jumped right into it thinking it would be like a one and done type thing. I lost 40 pounds, um, but it was kind of uncompromised. It was muscle and fat. So I was a skinny guy with abs. I wasn't a muscular guy with abs. Um, but I did a, my first competition and I placed top five. And that was just enough to get me on the hook. I, I got addicted because then it became, well, I can do better than that, you know? Right. And then the next one, I got my ass kicked. And I was like, okay, I can't leave on that note. And then the one after that, I won. And then that was the addiction after that was I want to win again. So I did it for about, um, I think, probably three years. Um, and the only reason why I stopped was it, it, it started to become a little bit more of a chore. Mm. Um, How so? In what way? Uh, mostly the diet part of it. I, I found that like... The, the competition part was a little narcissistic. It wasn't really my cup of tea. I'm more of like the, you know, I'm a, I'm a guy's guy, like camping, you know, all that kind of stuff, army stuff, um, not body grooming and spray tanning. So that side of it was a, necess- a necessity for the, for the sport, but not something I enjoyed. Um, and then the diet piece, um, it was just, it was tough to sustain it for three years because I was always tethered to a microwave for, by three hours. That was my maximum time mm. in between meals, um, which... So, so unpack that a little bit. Cause I think yeah. that, I think one of the biggest questions that, mm-hmm. that we, that is probably surrounding that type of, um, body management mm-hmm. is the diet piece. Right. Yeah. And I've heard, and I've heard people say that, Hey, it's, it's, you know, 10% lifting yeah. 90% diet. 100%. Is that a realistic? Yeah, for sure. And, uh, the, the diet piece was actually where I feel like, um, 
most of the discipline came from. And that was also intriguing to me. It was just a practice of discipline. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Kai Green, bodybuilder. He was competitive with the Olympia for a while. Um, but he actually had a little documentary. He talked about how he still cooks all of his own meals. Like he's got plenty of money to where um, he could have somebody, you know, make all the stuff for him. But when right. he's preparing for competition, he moves back into his old apartment without AC and cooks <laughs> his own meals. Um, and I thought that was really interesting because that was kind of the approach I took was um, I felt like not just eating regularly, but the act of cooking my own meals and the discipline and the regiment, um, even when I didn't want to eat or didn't want to cook, I was always, there was no excuse for it. I had to do it. And the motivating factor and the reason why I wanted to compete and do the bodybuilding was, you know, usually it's tough to be like, why am I, why am I doing this? You know, there's no reason for me to be tethered to a microwave. I used to leave, I was going on dates and like leaving the date at the restaurant and going into my car to have a meal. Like that's psychotic. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. What kind of message does that sound yeah, about that poor young lady? Yeah. <laughs> oh. um, but the whole motivating factor was I was, I kept thinking like, well, maybe the guy that beats me did the, did something extra that I didn't. And yeah. uh, I remember being offered a cookie, like one cookie one time at work. Um, and I said, no. And they're like, it's one cookie. And I was like, well, what if the guy that beats me had one less cookie than I did? <laughs> and that's maybe, it might be a little silly, but that was my train yeah. of thought was yeah. when I stepped on stage, I didn't want there to be a thought in my head that I had prepared less than somebody else. Yeah. And I think that was the most, um, that's what got me the most intrigued with the sport was that aspect of being the discipline and being motivated and having something to work toward. Yeah. No, I love that. I, I love the, the the fact that you looked at this through the lens of of discipline and mm -hmm. uncompromising behavior. Yeah. Because that's one of the things that when you talk about dieting, dieting is so challenging mm -hmm. because we we feel like there are external pressures that yeah. drive us. Yep. I'm on a date. I got to do certain things. Or I'm going to a family party. What am I going to do? Mm-hmm. Well, what do you want to do? Right. What's important to you? Yeah. And and I have wrestled with this <laughs> in various phases of my life, not mm -hmm. just diet, but just discipline as a whole, yeah. like as a practice. Yeah. And it's about, I, I think there's a huge component of this is making a decision, understanding what you want mm -hmm. and then saying, I, this is what is very, very important to me. Yep. And therefore I will not compromise because it's important to yep. me. And what other people want and what their lives are all about, that's their life. Yeah. And I'm not going to let their values drive my decision-making. Mm -hmm. And you're 100% right about the external pressures. That's a that's a big hurdle to overcome. You know, yeah. That's obviously pulling you in a different direction. Um, I remember I was working in the bars at the time, and I'd get off at like 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning, and the healthy options at that time are null. Um, and I'd go out with the guys I worked with and we'd go grab something to eat. We went to a Philly cheesesteak place. I love Philly cheesesteaks and I would order a chicken breast and they looked at me like I was batshit crazy, but kind of like what you're saying, like that's, that was what I wanted for me. So, right. And you know, what's funny is, so we, we talk about what is batshit crazy <laughs> and it, and we, and we realize that it's, it's, here's the social norms. Yeah. Now, you know, I'm just kind of putting my hands up in these boundaries, right? We have these boundary on one end, mm -hmm. boundary on the other and anything that's outside of that. Yep can make other people feel uncomfortable sure. with their own choices. Yep. But those social constructs that we create mm -hmm. dictate what's crazy and what's not. Yeah. And yeah, maybe eating chicken breast when you're out with the guys in the middle, you know, <laughs> after work or whatever is a little bit crazy, yep. but it's not crazy in the context of what you're trying to accomplish, mm -hmm. which is, you know, being as lean as possible, being as prepared as possible for yep. competition. Um, you know, we can talk about the merits of that, but that's a whole <laughs> other conversation, right? So that's, but but in order to in that context, yeah, you know, you pull out all the stops. Yep. And and what does it take to do that? Mm -hmm. So so give me an example. Um, I mean, obviously, chicken breast at the middle of the night. You mm -hmm. know, eating every couple of hours. Yep. Um, kind of gives us an idea of what you're doing. But what what does that diet really look like? So I did a macro based diet. So okay. um, it was 1.5 grams of protein and carbs per pound of what I wanted to weigh and 0.5 grams of fat. So my numbers, I think, were roughly 245 grams of carbs and protein per day and 81 grams of fat. And then I also did carb cycling. So Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday was fruits, vegetables, and beans. And then Thursday, Friday, Saturday was starches. And then Sunday was a off day, which that off day was a weird concept to me. Um, but I had a nutritionist. I, I, I actually stopped having a trainer because I was like, I know how to work out. I just don't know how to diet, right? Yeah. And the nutritionist had him to be a friend I made who happened to do diets for UFC fighters. So just a good guy to know. Um, and he's like, trust me. He's like, it might seem weird, but take Sunday off. And every Sunday I would gorge myself. It'd be like a holiday. Yeah. I was say, what did that look like? Diet? It was disgusting. <laughs> I, I almost got kicked out of a restaurant one time because I was so full. They thought I was drunk, <laughs> but that was my Sunday. And, uh, but I would wake up on Monday 
um, I'd look a little bit bloated. And then the <laughs> real you felt like oh, garbage yeah. too. <laughs> well, I actually felt pretty good. Really? The, the science okay. behind it is it actually resets your leptin, which is what okay. signals your body to feel full. Um, and so it made it easier to diet the rest of the week once I had those levels of leptin reset. Um, and then the rule of thumb he gave me was I had to do high intensity intervals after my cheat day. Okay. Um, and so even though Monday I would wake up and feel a little bit bloated, Tuesday it'd be it's crazy. It was just like shredded head to toe vascularity. Just your muscles get engorged with all that junk. You just gave it all that fuel. Right. But because you're, you know, you, your metabolism has been simulated the whole rest of the week and your training, it d- doesn't even touch you for more than 24 hours. Hmm. How, so how did it change or what did you do in your, in the gym differently if all, at all? So one of the, one of the best pieces of advice I got was if you want to look like an athlete, you got to train like an athlete. So, um, hmm. Everything I did, I would start with my primary mover. So I kind of, I called it power building. So I'd start heavy with squat, bench, deadlift, shoulder press, one of those moves. And then I would start to taper off and start getting into more of the high rep ranges, the bodybuilding ranges. And then following his advice toward the end, I would do some sort of athletic gymnastic calisthenic type movement that would s- still stimulate that target muscle group. So, mm. um, and we're talking, what, what type of what cycle are we talking here? Um, as far as like six months, 12 weeks. So the, it's the, well, I noticed that when I was dialed in the most, it took me four, it was eight months total training time. Um, and then four months of doing it really specifically the way that that guy was showing me, hmm. um, they, the rule of thumb for the competitions. Usually you're never going to be ready in less than 12 weeks, which makes sense. Cause I mean, you can step on stage, but it doesn't mean you're going to do well. Right. Um, but yeah, it was a fun way to train. Um, and then that was the other thing too, is really pushed myself in the gym. You know, there's, I remember there's times where like. I feel like I was going to throw up or like, you know, you start tearing up just with exhaustion or you're just getting hyped up. And it was difficult to train like that without that external motivating factor of I'm going to present my package on stage, you know, so I yeah. want to be able to. You should to, probably use different wording. Yeah. <laughs> no, package was correct, actually. <laughs> yeah, I don't like that. Makes me uncomfortable. The, the swimsuits were tight. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. Uh, but no, but, no, I love what you're saying there because the idea that you're going to, you're targeting your, um, your training mm-hmm. toward a specific objective yep. and um and and anytime you go to the gym without a focus mm-hmm. you are going to be uh wasting your time yep right 100 percent. and i think the same thing when you when you talk about dieting and eating you have to maintain a clarity of focus why am i doing anything that i'm doing yep. if you don't have that objective in mind it's very easy to fall off uh yeah fall off the turnip chart cart you know and and, and be doing something totally different yep and um so let me ask you this. So clearly that was prior to getting the fire service. But let's go mm-hmm. back a little bit in, into who Eric is. <laughs> where did where did you grow up? Uh, so I actually I was born in California, grew up in South Scottsdale. Uh, ironically, my parents moved out here from a house fire. So I guess uh, oh, there, that's there's that's a little bit. bit of writing on the wall there. That's yeah, yeah. interesting. <laughs> well, and so um, so you went out. Oh, how old were you when you came out here? Uh, three. Oh, you were just a kid. Yeah, I don't remember California, so I always say yeah. I grew up here just because I don't remember anything That's else. That's probably yeah. better for your psyche. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no offense to any Californians. I'm just, <laughs> just making fun. Um, so so growing up out here, you what were you doing before you – so I've only known you in the fire service. Mm-hmm. What did you do before the fire service? Um, so I actually went to ASU on an ROTC scholarship. Um, so I, I finished up at ASU and went into the Army. I actually chose to commission directly into the National Guard. Uh, there's a few main factors for that. Uh, they guaranteed branch of choice, and infantry was the only thing I wanted. Um, I knew the unit was deploying, which was another thing I really wanted. And then one of the biggest ones was uh, being part-time. It would allow me to pursue the fire service. So I felt like I could kind of get the best of both worlds, so I chose to go guard right off the bat. Which, looking So you, back, you already had an inkling about the fire service? I knew I wanted to be a first responder. Um, okay. I stubbornly kind of actually even nosed around the PD side because I was an infantry officer. I'm like, well, rifles and weapons doesn't translate too well to most things, but PD. Um, but then the first time I, I did a, it was like even the CPAP with the, the fire department, the physical process, the, the guys I met just doing that as opposed to the people, the, the personalities I was encountering doing um, some of the other testing that I was like, I'm more attracted. This is my type of people. Yeah. And I did a ride along. Um, and that's when I got hooked. As soon as I got the ride along, that's when I was like, okay, so nice. first responder, nope, going this route straight to fire. So when, so. when did you get the idea that you wanted to become a first responder? Uh, I'd say I was a really young kid. I remember asking 
my family for action figures and for um, like toy cars of fire trucks and police cars when I was like 10. Um, so I knew I always wanted to go that route. And it's, it's kind of weird, like thinking back on it, there was never another option in my head because yeah. I couldn't think of a career path that I, that I wanted to do. Other than that. I never saw myself sitting in an office. Um, I knew I wanted something engaging, exciting and fulfilling. And that was just the route that I always had. It seemed like that in the military was always kind of like the parallel for me being able to right. move forward. Yeah. Right on. So coming out of high school, you went into ASU. What did you study? I majored in justice and minored in leadership. Um, main reason I majored in justice because the military science classes um, kind of double dipped a little bit. <laughs> yeah. You get some crossover in your... Yeah. In your, nice. Um, well, cool. So you went... Okay. So you... Uh, 11 Bravo, mm-hmm. right? Yep. I always want to say O three hundred infantry, <laughs> <laughs> but that's my 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 background. I can't help myself. So so you went the other infantry route. Yeah. Um, so tell me about that. What, what was the training pipeline for an officer like? Yeah. For infantry. Uh, so it's actually kind of a funny story. I like to tell about the reason why I chose infantry is because I was on the fence for a little bit because there's a couple things I thought were pretty cool. You know, I was like, oh, artillery's cool, armor's cool, uh, and we did a, something called a branch orientation day where um, they each branch has a tent set up and you go there and they tell you about the branch and you get to pick at the end. Um, and we, I went to a couple different tents and they gave you like swag bags with like t-shirts and pins and all this (laughs) stuff like that. And they all had their stuff set up and TV monitors and their tents were decked out. And then I went to the infantry tent and it was sterile. There was, uh, metal folding chairs. (laughs) That's it. No ground, no nothing. And uh, a guy walks in. He's like, uh, he's like, hey, see all you guys got like the bags and stuff like that from all the other branches. He's like, so I want to give you a gift from the infantry. And we're like, okay, you know, getting excited. He's like, so reach under your chair. And we're all like, oh, we're gonna get something. <laughs> he's like, and I want you to pick up a rock because that's the only gift you're gonna get from us. <laughs> and for some reason, I just thought that was awesome. Like that resonated with me. Is like, you don't get anything extra for it. And that's the personality that attracts you. Same. I mean, kind of go with the fire service, busy stations, you're going to get your butt kicked, but the people that are attracted to that kind of thing are the people you want to work with. So that's why I wanted to go infantry. Um, and then as far as the training pipeline goes, um, I, once I joined the guard about a year after being with my unit, I got sent to Fort Benning to do, um, 16 weeks of infantry basic training, um, officer training, which was, it's, it's, it's become like a watered down ranger school. They try to mimic the same style with rotating leadership and, um, so all the, a lot of the same leadership principles. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. With a little bit more of an emphasis on the op order piece. Cause it's more yeah. classroom. There's like a classroom portion. So, so help people understand cause ranger school is an interesting thing mm-hmm. to me. Ranger school is just a leadership course. Mm-hmm. Right. But, and you become, you get your ranger tab, yep. but you are not a ranger. Correct. So help people understand, explain that a little bit. Yeah. So, uh, having a ranger tab, is just like having a certification. It's having a badge, um, but being in a ranger unit, like a ranger regiment, um, that's kind of what people think of as being a ranger. Like uh, there's whole in, whole entire units that are made up of rangers, uh, which are that's where a lot of people want to go. And then there's people who just have a ranger tab. You know, they're but you right. both consider ranger. And they can you but, can you can get a ranger tab and work in other units. Correct. Yeah. 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 And they and there's even like. Uh, other services will ch- will send their people to ranger mm-hmm. schools because, like you said, it is a, a really good leadership course, and it's just a it's a challenging course. Kind of lets you know what you're made of. Um, that was that was my only regret looking back was um, I was never afforded the opportunity to go because I chose guard. Um, that school is state funded, and they can't justify spending that money. If I would have been active, I would have had an opportunity, but I didn't have an opportunity with the guard. Right. Um, but either way, like I, I always was intrigued by the idea of that school and some of the people that came out of it. It was yeah. uh, usually solid people. Yeah. So you're going through a training pipeline that has a lot of the same elements. Mm-hmm. And, um, so what are some of the, what are some of the things that you take away from that, that are, um, that you apply in your leadership to this day? Um, I think it's, uh, so you get to see a lot of different leadership styles cause we're, we're rotating different leadership positions. So, um, I've always thought don't make the same mistake twice. Um, that's like been like my, my principle from day one. Um, and then the side, other side of that too is you don't even have to make the same you don't even have to make the mistake in the first place if you see someone else do it first that is true (laughs) wisdom right so going through and seeing all these different people you know cadets or junior officers my peers going through the process i would not only pay attention to the guys who are really successful but also the ones who weren't successful because i wouldn't repeat those mistakes um so i think that's that served me well moving forward was um i feel like the the newer I was, the less I spoke and the more I watched. And that was kind of from cadet to even being a second lieutenant. And that's a weird transition too. you go from 
it's not like someone sprinkles magic dust on you and all of a sudden you got experience, but you go from being a cadet to all of a sudden you're the platoon leader and the guy that I'm in charge of is my platoon sergeant who has, you know, 12 years of experience, 15 years of experience, and I have to counsel them on expectations, you know? So I think being able to humble yourself a little bit and realize that he's still the boss, you know, you got a lot to learn, so keep your mouth shut, just make decisions and, you know, yeah, know, your, know your there, role. There are so many jokes and memes about second lieutenants yeah. and, you know, orienteering mm-hmm. and, and navigation yep. and, and, and leadership and, and how they'll come in and try to big ball uh senior NCO. Yeah. And that's just ridiculous. Yep. You know, it's funny to me because organizationally it is a very interesting pipeline because organizationally they have, you have organizational position and rank, mm-hmm. um, but none of the real seasoning right. that helps you be successful as a leader. Yep. So I think that coming in with humility and um, deference mm-hmm. to these people who have actual boots on the ground exposure and experience mm-hmm. and listening and then taking from that what you can is yep. a really valuable tool. Yeah. And I think we can all learn a lot from For that. Sure. You know, uh, I think about it in terms of, let me throw it in terms of the fire service, just because, you know, as a chief officer, just I get rotated into different sections mm-hmm. and just because I have organizational authority mm-hmm. and position and rank yep. doesn't necessarily mean that I'm the expert. Mm-hmm. So I have to defer to people who have technical expertise in a given area yeah. and, and, and listen carefully to what they're saying yep. and help them be successful yeah. with the organizational authority that I have. Mm-hmm. But it's based on the information that they're providing because yep. they're the subject matter expert. Yep. hundred percent. Yeah. And I feel like that's where I got most of my growth early on was from just listening to the guys who I was in charge of, you know, technically, yeah. but right. who had the experience. And yeah. I remember when I counseled them, um, the way the counseling went was the first question I asked was, what do you expect from me? Because um, that was equally as important. You know, I can give him loose expectations, which is, you know, nothing. You know, do your job. You already know how to do your job. Um, and then... I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the other thing is I couldn't imagine having been put in that role with... with I mean, there's some people in that position, platoons are in position that aren't that squared away and just somehow made it to that point. Um, that's your lifeline. So I can imagine that being a real tough thing if you don't have that early good mentorship. And I was fortunate enough to, the two platoon sergeants I had were really good NCOs and they helped a lot in my development and they let me know when I was doing something stupid privately and then I was able to fix it. So nice. um, always kind of sent me in the right direction. Yeah. One of the things that comes to my mind in that relationship is the importance of trust. Right. And that's something that I, we talk about a lot. It's very, very important in any high risk organization. Mm-hmm. And especially when you have a young leader who has a, an area of responsibility, yep. but you have you have members of your group that have a lot more experience and, and establishing trust with each other, so mm-hmm. that you know you are willing to listen to them and yep. they're willing to provide you with some guidance. Yep, um, and trusting that they're not going to you know throw you over the edge. Yeah, on something dumb. Yep, um, it's really really important. But it takes a lot of. I think humility is the key to building that relationship, as, yeah. you, as you said. Yep, and then that doesn't change you know, beyond the platoon time, moving up the ranks, you know, I think organizationally that's, that's that humility always has to exist. And sometimes that is more difficult to dial back. And some, you'll see sometimes there's officers who start getting further up in the chain and they seem so disconnected. It's like, you remember 10 years ago when you were out with the guys, like what that felt like to be told you got to do this, you know? um, What's an example of how that disconnect manifests, you think? I I think it's just time away from the field. um, And but what's it look like? I think it's miscommunication. I don't know if that's that's what you're kind of like looking for, but uh, I I think the the biggest disconnect is when I think people in certain positions don't realize how privy they are to certain information, and they don't realize what their decisions might seem like to the guy at the lowest level who hadn't gotten the whole picture. Hmm. And so Joe, you know, guy at the lowest level might get this order, which doesn't make any sense to him. And it might not make sense a couple levels up, but then you start painting the picture in the grand scheme of things. And even though it might not be ideal, again, good leaders make the don't always make the popular decision; they make the right decision. Um, the person who made that decision wasn't intending, "Hey, I'm doing this because I want to screw this guy." It was because based on all these factors and all these discussions that I've had and people have had, this is what has to happen. And then sometimes that person receiving that is out of the loop and maybe they'd understand if they had the full picture, but until then they're just pissed off that they got to do whatever they got to do. So, but, and I, I think you can, you can definitely tell the leaders, um, especially within the military that 
still have that empathy, still have that humility to be able to um, understand that what they do impacts a lot of people. Yeah. So I had a, a, a leader tell me years and years and years ago, um, one of the most important things that a leader can do is be present. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of speaks to what you're talking about here because it's not just, it's about communication yeah. and, and, and being present enough to say, Hey, I care about you. You talked about empathy, you use mm-hmm. the word empathy, very important. It, you know, remembering that your boots on the grounds have a very different perspective because of where they are organizationally. Yep. And so they don't have the the full vision or the full scope of what you're sharing mm-hmm. or what you're trying to accomplish. So somehow the leader has to make that information available to yep. those folks, right? In a, in a bite-sized format mm-hmm. that they can understand. And I think sometimes that involves hosting meetings mm-hmm. or it involves showing up in, in a workspace yep. and, and just saying, Hey, got any questions? Mm-hmm. I know we threw a big change on you guys or whatever. Yeah. Got any questions about it? Yeah. Or it requires you know, using your subordinate leaders to disseminate information, but, yep. but making sure that it's meaningful. Right. Yeah. Um, but if you just throw it out there and then, and don't support that information, mm-hmm. it, I think it creates the problems that we're talking about. And, yeah. and of course, what do the guys on the ground go? Yeah. The old man's completely disconnected. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't get it anymore. He doesn't know what it's like to live in the dirt. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And let's be honest. We're talking about 11 Bravos here, right? They literally live yeah. in the dirt. Yeah. And so uh, the lowest form of life. <laughs> <laughs> so these poor guys are, you know, living in the dirt, breathing in the dirt and eating, sitting in the dirt, mm-hmm. you know, all they want is to be led with some information and yeah. some empathy. Hey, I recognize that you're in the dirt. Mm-hmm. Here's some things that we're going to, you know, here's why we're doing what we're doing. Yep. Um, here's an interesting thing too is um, recently I've been having some conversations with guys about leadership styles. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious to hear what, when you think, when someone says to you, like, what is your leadership style? Mm-hmm. What pops in your head? So th- that's a really good question. Cause I thought about that a lot. And once I took company command, um, I was asking myself that same question. What is my leadership style? And I was thinking back on effective leaders that I've had, and they had different styles ranging from the authoritarian who I worked hard for because I was terrified of them. And then I also got the other leadership style where it was the person who I got along with, felt comfortable with, and worked hard because I respect them as a person. Um, and I actually tried a little bit of both early on. I was experimenting, like, what, what works for me? And the authoritarian side didn't, come naturally. Um, I had a difficult time maintaining, I wouldn't say being a dick, but like, uh, being so standoffish and kind of brash toward, you know, maintaining that, that leadership role. And what I found that worked for me and it's, it was been effective is I think guys will, especially with the, with the military, they'll do what they're told because of your rank, but they'll do it better if they respect the person behind the rank. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was more important for me that my soldiers respected me as a person. And so I feel like the more, humanized I was, the more I could interact with them and just be a guy, a good, uh, you know, a man that they respected. Mm. Um, I got more out of them. Um, the only flip side of that too, is there will be moments where that'll be challenged and you have to make sure that you can transition from being, Hey, you know, we're all on the same team, respect me as a person. Cause we're friends to no, I'm your boss. Um, and those moments I can think of distinct moments of that, that happen, but they're not planned. They just happen. And it's how you react to it will define whether you get walked on or whether people respect you. Yeah. I, I like that. I like that you said you you looked back at different leaders you've had mm-hmm. because I think that's an important – we get informed and shaped by all the different people we've been around. Yeah. And those people left a feeling, an impression yeah. on you in in different ways. Mm-hmm. And so – and you go, hmm. I, I remember starting to ask myself that same question. Go, what kind of leader am I? <laughs> and interestingly, when I was a young NCO in the Marine Corps, mm-hmm. my leadership style was very author- – uh, I can't even say the word authoritarian, <laughs> uh-huh. right? That was, that is a kind of a, a Marine Corps style. Yeah. That is default, default yep. style, default mm-hmm. aggressive, right? Yep. And the, it's the style we have in, in, in the early ages. And I think a lot of people mature. I had a really cool Lieutenant. He was a history buff mm-hmm. and he had us reading. Um, I was like a Lance Corporal and he brought it, he bought us all this, the book uh, it was called, the foot book by Dr. Seuss. No. <laughs> I was just that trying to think of Marine Reader. That'd have been a good one. <laughs> no, it was called Killer Angels. Okay. Uh, and it was a uh, it was a book about the Battle of Gettysburg. Mm-hmm. Really cool book, very history oriented. Yeah. And I'm like, you expect us all to read this? Mm-hmm. Okay. And 
I read it and I highlighted it with my crayons, you know, and <laughs> <laughs> no, it was, it was, it was amazing. Uh-huh. But interestingly, uh, Lieutenant Arnold, I'll never forget that man. Mm-hmm. Wonderful leader, very thoughtful, caring, and he was lifting us all up. Mm-hmm. Hey, we're going to be educated about warfare. Yep. Let's read this book. We're going to talk about it when we go in the field, blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. And I'm sure each one of us got something different out of that experience. Yeah. But that leadership style was, was transformative to me. Mm-hmm. And then interestingly, um, I remember being, you know, very like, Hey, this is the op order. This is what we're doing. No questions. Move mm-hmm. out. Yep. And the, I brought, I came home one day and, um, <laughs> I, t- I started talking to my wife and I'm like, Hey, <laughs> I just come home from the field. This is yeah. how I got in trouble many times doing this. I come home from the field and I'm uh-huh. like, all right, this is what has to happen. <laughs> and she's like, um, excuse me, as her finger comes up and goes in my face, I'm not one of your little Lance Corporals. I'm not one of your privates. So you better check yourself. And yeah. I'm like, uh, right. Roger. I forgot. I came home to the commandant. What yeah. am I doing? What am I doing? So um, I, what I began to recognize uh, over the years, and it's take, it took me a long time to evolve into this, is that my leadership style had to be the flexible one mm-hmm. because the recipients of my leadership yeah. – mm-hmm need different things yep. at different times. So on the fire ground or in a moment of, of, of duress or, or intense activity, mm-hmm. I can be very direct yep. and it's, it's a, <laughs> how come I can't say that word this morning? <laughs> it's authoritative uh-huh. and authoritarian uh, in that moment. And uh, when I have some discretionary time, mm-hmm. I can be a lot more of a, an empathetic and a lot more caring and thoughtful and, and relaxed yep. leader. And that's, and you can call that whatever you want, right? It can be, um, it can be a transformational leader. Mm-hmm. It can be the, um, what's the one I'm looking for that everybody loves that's, to use? I, I didn't mention it because I couldn't think of it. The <laughs> <laughs> uh, servant leader, mm-hmm. right? That style. So whatever style you, you name it, but mm-hmm. it's about uh, looking at your folks yeah. and saying, what does that person need to be successful today? Yeah. Because you can have a platoon of people or a company of people and every person's coming with different baggage. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean baggage in a negative way. I just mean they're coming with different perspectives. Yep. And so how do we address that? How, so how, what, do, what do you think of that? And how do you, how do you address that when you're coming to your company? With different personalities? Yeah. Um, so I think that's where like, and this might sound like kind of a, a silly term, but the art of leadership, you hear about the art of leadership. Um, and I, when you were talking about being able to transition from different styles of leadership, I think that's where that really comes into play. Um, and then being able to manage your personalities, knowing the strengths and weaknesses of your, of your individuals who are beneath your subordinates, um, and then taking the time to get to know them well enough to use those strengths and weaknesses. Um, so I think when you have somebody, a, a group of people from all different backgrounds, you have a, a ton of potential there. And that's actually one of the cool things about the Guard is – Nobody is foxholed into just being the active duty soldier. There's guys who are coming from corrections or from mm. logistic backgrounds on the civilian side, um, first responders, all kinds of different things, um, and they bring something different to the table. Yeah. Um, we actually had a, a training in Germany where it was crowd riot control, and we're infantry. We don't actually have that function. It was more of an MP function, but we were out there doing the training, and we had two soldiers that were corrections officers, and they were PFC and specialist. And I completely deferred the entire thing to them. Like, teach us. Like, what do you know? Yeah. Um, and then that might seem counterintuitive to have, like, a private teaching, you know, all these senior NCOs and an officer. But that was the subject matter expert for that. And he had that yeah. background. That's one, of the, that's one of the cool things about the Guard mm-hmm. is that you have people who have a very diverse background. Yeah. And can actually inform, gives you a, a greater diversity of capacity as an organization that's mm-hmm. really kind of cool yeah i look back to my time you know my when, you know when i was with first tank battalion all these dingbats are 19 <laughs> and 18 you know 20 years old yeah. we all know nothing yeah all we know is mm, put tank in drive go yeah. forward you're like that's we don't know anything yeah. right put big projectile in cannon cannon go boom <laughs> right and our skills beyond that were pretty limited yeah yep <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of an interesting dichotomy when you look mm-hmm. at the two of those forces right because people poo poo the the guard on a lot of levels but yep. there's there's a lot of value that they bring and yeah. quite frankly uh in the last 20 years the guard has gotten a tremendous amount of war fighting experience right yep. which is pretty interesting so it is it is change i'm sure that has changed the yep. the way the guard is represented in the way yeah. it feels to be there yeah yeah having that veteran experience because a lot of the, a lot of guard members are guys transitioning off active duty mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so you know you, we, even though they're not 
after these soldiers anymore, you got guys with multiple deployments coming in and being a resource to all these newer members. Uh, and that's actually one of my concerns looking 10 years out in the guard is, um, there's less and less of that experience out there now already, you know, now that Afghanistan's gone, um, you're going to see less and less veterans within the ranks and, we stepped away, this might be going on a little tangent a little bit, but we stepped away from um, the conventional warfare that people think of when they think of the military and mm-hmm. fighting the peer threats, the Russias and the Chinas, and we entrenched ourselves for two decades in the counterinsurgency mindset, mm-hmm. and we got really good at that. And our takeaway from it was, even though we're not practicing conventional warfare, we're getting war fighting experience. We had ranks of veterans, which that experience is... You can't train it. It's irreplaceable. And I think mm. that set our military up as a, a leg up from everybody else. We had two decades of conflict that made us better at being soldiers. And then every now, every year that passes, we're losing more and more of those experienced members to now we're just left with a military that hasn't fought a conventional war and is lacking the veteran leadership that it used to. So you're, what you're describing to me sounds like what happened after World War II, mm-hmm. right? There was this wave of peacetime where there was no conflicts. Oh, they were skirmishes, but nothing serious. Mm -hmm. And then Vietnam came, and they were trying to bring uh, a 1950s-era army into a 1960s Mm -hmm. event, uh, and and it was jungle warfare. The whole entire battlefield completely changed, and they were thrown for a loop, and it took them quite a while to reorient, Mm -hmm. change training doctrine, change behavior, operational behaviors in the field. Mm -hmm. So that's a... So we can do about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's a tough problem to solve too. And it's like, uh, it's getting back to the basics. And that's actually one of my leadership philosophies. When I, when I took command of my first company, um, I came in with certain things that I told them was important to me. And one of my tenants was mastering the basics. And I feel like elite in anything, whether it be, you know, military or sport or whatever, the elite pr- version of the people in that category are the people who have just mastered the basics. They don't necessarily do anything extraordinary even special forces like they're highly trained but what makes them different than the average soldier is they have mastered the basics and they can do it really well mm-hmm. all their battle drills everything and i think being able to have that foundation the basic soldiering and the the mastery of shoot move and communicate will transition into whatever i can teach you to do something more complex you have to have that foundation afterward yeah so. nice well you had mentioned that when you came out, you wanted to go under deployment. Mm. Um, and so did you get that opportunity? So not at first. Uh, we got stood down in 2011. Um, and then it took a few years to finally get there. But in 2018, 2019 is when we got sourced again for deployment. And uh, so that's when I went. Um, very different war from that time to the first time we were getting sourced. Um, not as kinetic. And uh, they knew that they were outmatched fighting us directly. So it was a lot more uh, rocket attacks and the ambushes, the IEDs, which has been a a lingering thing for the duration of that war. Um, But yeah, nobody ever shot at me with a gun, but they like to set up rockets on our, on our fob. Um, And our main job out there was actually to build up the ANA. And that's kind of where the U S army transitioned from, you know, letting them take the lead as opposed to us doing all the fighting. We're now training them to be able to be a sustainable fighting force. And that was the biggest challenge out there was making them a sustainable fighting force. So, so I've heard that, um, that dialogue a lot mm-hmm. over the, over the last however many years, 20 years it's been right. Oh, we're going to go in, train the ANA. They're going to stand up their own force. So it's mm-hmm. taken a long time. Yeah. And I feel like that mission never really came to fruition. Like it never really fulfilled the measure of its expectation. Yeah. And I remember when I first got out there, I remember thinking, I don't know if you've ever seen the video of the Afghan jumping jack. Yes, <laughs> yeah. totally. Yeah. So that was my perception of the guys we're going to be training was guys who can't even do a coordinated jumping jack together. Right. Uh, but then I also didn't realize that when I went out there, it had almost been two decades of us being there. And there's entire generations of Afghans that had grown up knowing, not knowing anything other than American presence. Oh, that's a great point. Yeah. It was, it was baffling. And, um, I, when we first got out to the place that we were in charge of, which was the regional core battle school, Eastern Afghanistan, um, I was expecting the Afghan jumping jack. And instead I saw uniforms, clean shaven people with polished boots on. I'm like, that's crazy. And they still even, I mean, even some of our basic trainees don't know like their ass from their face. Um, but (laughs) There was it was a lot easier to work with them and train with them, and we were able to get them to even conduct doctrinal battle drills. 
And so I was pleasantly surprised about where they had come from in that time. And this the perception of Americans in general. Like I think uh, we were we were very well received there by our allies. The people who were friendly to us really supported us being there. Um, and I was actually very surprised when we pulled out how quick that all collapsed because granted we gave them a pretty big crutch being present there to help them out. Mm. It seemed like they were, they had the framework there to really be able to be on their own without us. So yeah. it was surprising that they kind of, you know, turned around so quick. <laughs> yeah. From your perspective, what, what do you think your analysis, your perspective, mm. what do you think might've been led to that problem? I think one of the biggest issues was the discipline was always a big, a big issue for them too. They're, is that a cultural issue? I think it is. Yeah, I think it, it stems mostly culturally. Um, and I think it's also a loyalty thing where uh, we started doing a thing where we were standing up. We call them territorial forces hmm. uh, because they were finding that they're recruiting people to the ANA that might not be loyal to Afghanistan or the government. They might not be loyal to their province. They might not even be loyal to this their their little village they might be only loyal to this patch of dirt mm. um so the loyalties varied greatly and so the concept of the anf was that they would recruit people from their homes train them equip them organize them into a platoon or a company and then send them back to their homes to be a hold force because then regardless of whether they were loyal to the government of Afghanistan or not they were going to defend their homes from taliban coming in and taking things over and that was a big a big effort. That was one of the primary efforts in all of Afghanistan was they called the Afghan national army territorial force was they had enough. They didn't have enough money to train a full-time army that could both hold and maneuver. So they made it like a part-time, almost like an Afghan national guard, the part-timers to make it sustainable were the territorial forces that were the hold force. They would stay in their homes where they were from and they protect that area while the actual active ANA, the full-timers could do the maneuver aspects of it. Interesting. So I know earlier you said that you didn't get your Ranger tab, but Mm -hmm. did you get your CIB out of this? I didn't get a CIB, but I did get my combat patch. (laughs) And I got to, got to say I got 50, I got 50 missions as a ground force commander in a combat theater. Nice. Um, And that was, that was big for me. It's just, it's rare that my, I got lucky that in my career it lined up to where I was in company command at the same time we got to deploy. I felt like it was a missed opportunity when I was a platoon leader and I didn't get to deploy as a platoon leader. But looking back on it, it was I feel like it was way more fulfilling to be able to deploy as a as a company commander. Um, it's a it's a small window you have in your career to have both those line up, and I got yeah. very fortunate to do it. That's super cool. So, what's something that you take away from that event, that event, that deployment, mm-hmm. um, which is a long event? Yeah. <laughs> uh, what's something that you take away from that you that you, that you reflect on on a regular basis? So, I remember when we first got out there um, and we were handed our mission. I had no idea about what my role was. Um, they are told that we were in charge of the regional core battle school and we supervised their training and that's it. Um, and I remember getting emails asking for data and different things and just feeling like drowning. Like, I don't know where to start. Like, where do I get the answers for this? Um, and it was really just diving into it. And it was like, I it didn't make sense at first. I faked it till I made confidence, you know, without the competence yet. Um, but then eventually the the competence came because I started becoming really well informed with what we were doing and started figuring things out a little bit, drawing my own conclusions and paying the picture. Um, and we actually ended up sticking our nose where it didn't belong. And we bit off what ended up being a larger part of our mission than what we were even out there for. Uh, we were out there for just the regional core battle school. And then because we were investing in the people that we had trained following them afterward, we got lumped into the Afghan National Army Territorial Force, which ended up being the main thing we did out there. And that wasn't even what we were out there for. Mm. We just fell into being the subject matter experts of doing that, me and my team. Um, and we ended up being across the entire country. People knew who we were as subject matter experts. And that's that's crazy to think that this group of 40 guys from the National Guard in Arizona were known in Kabul from what they were doing in eastern Afghanistan. That was really cool. Um so yeah, it gets a roundabout way of saying it might not make sense at first, but if you dive into it and just invest your time into being able to figure it out, um, you know, we worked our asses off and it, it, it paid off. We built a lot of value. And I think building value is something that people kind of scoff at sometimes because they think of it as just taking on more work. Um, and we had people tell us, hey, don't get involved in that. You know, you're not going to be able to back out of it. And we'd still get involved in it and it ended up paying it off because that's what people remembered us as being the group that worked their asses off um, and built the value. And from being, we could have just been 40 dudes out there doing our little mission from Arizona and that'd been it. But we ended up 
biting off a big chunk and end up uh, having like that national impact, which was really cool. Nice. Well, how you have transitioned mm-hmm. into the fire service. <laughs> yeah. I think in any, you know, you did it with the fire service, but I think that, you know, a lot, there's service members and, and people transitioning from one endeavor into another mm-hmm. and you just like the national guard, right? You have these people yeah. who bring a skill set mm-hmm. and they can apply it in a different way. So how are you taking, um, the lessons and the things that you've learned, uh, while you're soldiering mm-hmm. and, and brought that into the fire service? How has it shaped and informed who you are as a firefighter? Yeah, it's been a, it's been an interesting transition, especially very early on in the career, like even on probation and stuff like that. I had a lot of leadership experience and I was the low man, on the totem pole, which I actually really enjoyed because it gave me a break from having to, you know, I don't mind being the guy holding the mop to, you know, take a break from having to be in charge all the time, but also kind of gave me an interesting perspective to be able to watch leadership and how the, how it works in the fire service, just having the, the perspective and the background from the military. Um, and there's even a few times where, uh, it had a, a negative impact, the difference in cultures. Um, mm. and one, give me, give one an example. So, well, like I said, I learned in the military by keeping my mouth shut and just listening. Um, and then a few times early on, the, people would think I was weird because I was just very quiet. They were wondering if I even enjoyed being at work, but it was just, you know, I nose down, let me just listen and hear everything. Um, and so that was, I think, one of the, it, it has also kind of funny as far as like being weird. It took me four years before I capped, called a captain by their first name. I was just so uncomfortable with the informality. Um, I was even, it was like the captain I saw every day. I was, it was always skip or cap, never called him by his first name. And I could tell it made him uncomfortable. And I was like, finally, I started trying to like ease into it a little bit. And uh, just weird differences, cultural differences like that. The biggest yeah. thing I think is the formality, the, you know, the, the rank structure exists in both, but one is much more formal and concrete. Yeah. You know, I will say something to that though, which is interesting is that Phoenix, it, while we are paramilitary, we are a lot, uh, I'll just say looser mm-hmm. than a lot of agencies, right? Yeah. There are agencies out there where no, right. It's captain so-and-so and it's mm-hmm. Lieutenant so-and-so. And yeah. So it, I struggle <laughs> with that a little bit too. When I first got on the job, yeah. uh, that transition, I'm like, uh, this is supposed to be a paramilitary. What exactly does paramilitary mean? Yeah. <laughs> Cause I expect polished boots, pressed yeah. pants and, uh, you know, we don't call officers by their first name. Yep. Yeah. That was definitely a transition. <laughs> yeah. And as far as where I'm at in my career now, I think one of the biggest lessons I keep thinking, cause now I've transitioned to being a senior firefighter. Um, and I think back on one of the, the best pieces of advice I got was the best leaders are also the best followers. Um, and I think that's true because if you have leadership experience, you can empathize with people who are in that position. And so as a senior firefighter, I know that I want to be as much of a resource for the captain tour. He doesn't have to worry about me and the junior firefighter. Oh, we're doing our job and we know how to do it. And we're making his life easier. We're making him look good. And I, I pride myself on trying to be able to do that to the highest extent and just being able to think about what it's like to have to make decisions he has to make and then just supporting that as best I can. Um, Cause I would appreciate that on the flip side. Yeah. I like that. That's it. I mean, it's, an, it's important to, um, what I like about what you're saying there is that you are looking at the the events and the decision making that the company officer is making, mm-hmm. and figuring out what they're thinking about mm-hmm. and supporting their decisions. Yeah, right. Like that. That's so important because so many times we sit in the back seat and we just like drift off. Yeah. <laughs> right. Tell me. Hey, just tell me what you need me to do, rather than engaging. Yeah. In the call whether it be from a medical call or, or a fire call or whatever, mm-hmm. from the beginning mm-hmm. and doing your own size up from the backseat going, hmm, I wonder what challenges we're going to face on this event. What challenges are my company officer going to face? Mm-hmm. And what can I do to help this operation be smoother? Yep. Like you have to be actively thinking about that yep. throughout the event. Yep. Um, and that is what, you know, when you talk about uh, the functionality of a, of an engine company or mm-hmm. a ladder company or a team of any site, a type, if the players are engaged, yeah, you have a smoother operation. Yep, yeah, that's huge. Um, so we were talking about trust earlier, and so I and I really believe that trust is a critical component mm-hmm. of a company, a high risk work group being yep. functional. So how how do you feel like your role as a senior firefighter? Mm-hmm. It builds. How do you operationalize that role to build trust and to to build that team? I think it's uh, confidence and competence, and they're closely related, but not exactly the same. Um, I think in order to be in that position, for one, you got to be competent. I think you also have to have 
the ability to point the mirror at yourself and know when you suck at something or when you need additional work. Mm. Um, because if you can't perform that task, then you're a liability. So I think being able to analyze yourself and being competent is the biggest thing. And usually confidence comes with that. Like if you're, if you know that you're good at what you do and you know, and you're dialed in the confidence comes naturally. Then there are certain times where people will be looking to you. And even if you're not hundred percent confident, uh, competent, you better seem really confident either way. So they know how to follow. Um, and that's happened a few times, both in the fire service and the military, where I been put in a situation where I didn't know the exact answer, but somebody was looking at me for action. And it's like, you know, a decision is better than indecision. So then you just got to make it happen. Um, then you go back and you're like, okay, how can I be better prepared for that in the future? And that's where the competence comes in. And then that confidence becomes a little bit more natural. Yeah. So, how, so I hear people wrestle with uh, the difference between confidence mm -hmm. and arrogance. Mm -hmm. How do you know the difference? Um, I think... That, that, that's a good question. It, it, I think it's a, it definitely comes down to the individual and the personalities and it's how you, um, I think it's how you convey your message or, or what you're doing, whatever task you're doing, whatever you're, you're focusing on. Um, there's a way to do it to where people can tell you know what you're doing and there's a way you can do it where it's almost like you're putting people down because they don't know how to do it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's where the arrogance comes from. And then uh, having the moments of humility, like we talked about too, I think arrogance is cumulative where people start thinking of you as arrogant because you lack that dose of humility. But I think when you might be confident in something, but then are also willing to still receive the guidance and direction and show that you're open to more feedback, I think that does a lot for how people view you as a whole. Yeah, no, well, well said. That's a great answer. It is, uh, it's tricky because the social skills mm -hmm. that uh, we as human beings have to be exercising on a regular basis are yeah. pretty nuanced. Yeah. And I think that's one of the tricky pieces. Like, like you were saying, hey, I felt kind of like I was being weirdo mm -hmm. by being quiet. Well, which was weird because when I came on this job, it was, uh, that was expressly told to me. Yeah. Hey, you are the booter. You mm -hmm. shut up. You be quiet. Um, we will talk to you if we need anything from you. We'll tell you what we need. Mm -hmm. um, otherwise, listen, learn, and just be quiet. Yep. And so I don't know if generation generationally that has evolved and changed a little bit. Mm -hmm. And in the last five years, like you know, being a, being that quiet listener has now changed. Um, I, I don't think so. But at the same time. What is the social? Is has it changed? Tell me. So it was that's that threw me through a loop even more. Is the expectation changed on, by rotation when I was on probation? So oh, from there, company to company. Yeah. So there was there was one station that was much more. Hey, keep your head down, shut your mouth, and just listen. And then there's another company that was. How come you don't want to talk to us in the morning? You know why are you being so weird? <laughs> like I don't know what to do. <laughs> right. But uh, yeah. man, so that so man, that is weird because this, we talk about the 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 social cognitive skills mm -hmm. that that. You know, and we don't really we don't always talk about things in this way, but the idea to that we are navigating this social minefield mm -hmm. and knowing what one person uh, finds acceptable versus another person in a workspace, it takes time. It does, and, and it takes time in. Yeah, you know, getting to know what what people want from you. Um, I remember when I was a booter, I had one comp. We used to have these computer games um, that you could play just on the PCs, and mm -hmm. the, all the PCs in the station would be linked up. As a booter, I never went near that. Yeah. Now I'm not playing no dumb games. I'm mm -hmm. out. I gotta go. I got toilets to clean. Yeah. However, I had one company that was really into it, and they're like, "No, we need a fourth. <laughs> like, yeah. You got to sit down it's and play. An order. Yeah. <laughs> and you suck at it, so we're gonna kill you relentlessly. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, it was really a struggle for me because I'm yeah. like, uh, I don't know what we're doing here, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> you guys said it's okay, and it yeah. was totally great. It was wonderful. But again, the point being is navigating these. The, the differences in organizational structures and, mm -hmm. and different people's expectations. Right. So you have to be socially savvy mm -hmm. um, and go in and size up the situation, size up the folks, see what's going on, see what the expectations are, mm -hmm. and be aware of that. Yeah. And so I really worry about some of our folks that are a little bit socially inept because mm -hmm. they get labeled as completely inept. Yeah. For, <laughs> I don't, as for lack of a... a a kinder way of saying that. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, those social outcasts struggle mm -hmm. yeah. in our organization, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, and I honestly, I would put myself in that category early on. Um, you know, like I said, like trying to reflect back on, I always try to analyze myself and how things are, are going in my career. And I think that was an issue I struggled with too. It's just, I, I feel like the, 
the transition from the military to the fire department of being socially awkward in terms made it difficult until I had some years behind me and some more comfortability with uh, being able to function. And even with that too, like the levels of anxiety go down. Um, you're able to, and that in itself helps your social interaction already when your anxiety is not through the roof, you know, you're able to talk to people better. Um, and I also think like when you're, <laughs> when you're, when you have like the idea that you're acting weird or something like that, it's like a self fulfilling prophecy where there is like, I remember there's certain times where, you know, I'd, I'd be on probation, like, okay, let's not say anything weird today. <laughs> <laughs> right out of the gate, you know, like Eric's being weird again. Um, <laughs> and it really did take some time. There's sometimes definitely fell flat on my face. And uh, it, it took a while before you kind of start meshing with certain personalities and you open up a little bit more and you get that comfortability to, it's easier to navigate some of the, the different social and cultural things that you'll experience within the job. Right. So as a self-proclaimed weirdo, <laughs> how would you lead said weirdo if, if they were in your stead? Um, I think, so I always make sure that is, if it is that they're indeed just weird and they're not lazy, I think that's the big thing too. Cause there's a very big difference between like, this guy's kind of weird or this guy's not paying attention. And he's kind of lazy, not paying attention to detail. Um, and there's been booters at the station I'm at now who work really hard, but then the crew might see them as kind of a weirdo, you know? And it's like, then I think it's just what helped me the most was the, was the, the senior firefighters, the senior members that took the time to have a normal conversation down to earth, man to man with me. Nothing even has to be about the job or about professional development, but just talking to me man to man and making me feel more comfortable about just not having to impress somebody and having a normal conversation without that, um, that threat of um, what's the word I'm looking for, like uh, being analyzed. Mm. Um, and everyone's got different training styles. And that's one thing that I've liked being the position of senior firefighter now is what I've been telling our probationary guys, whether they're weird or not, <laughs> is what I want from them is to try to feel comfortable at work because um, that makes it easier for us to train them because they're taking things in more. They're not making mistakes out of just being nervous. Mm. So I try to make them feel comfortable, make sure they're still on their toes because they're on probation. That's usually how they're supposed to be, but comfortable enough to perform their form the tasks without feeling like they're at risk of destroying their entire reputation because they mess something up type thing. Yeah. Yeah, there's so much that can be learned from some of those errors as well. Mm -hmm. And but if you're so um, hyper fixated on your reputation and, and you're not able to, if you're so anxious, you have so much anxiety, mm -hmm. you can't learn from that yep. gaff. You're going to be in big trouble, right? Because yeah. you're doomed to repeat it. Mm -hmm. um, and this speaks to what we were talking about earlier, which is this idea that, well, as the senior firefighter, I have a, a leadership responsibility mm -hmm. to the probie and um, to and to the firefighters around me, and you have to be the one who navigates and, and helps them navigate these waters. Yep. You're the one who's comfortable, mm -hmm. and they're coming into your house, and they're, if they're uncomfortable in your house, who's responsible for that? Yeah. You know, you can't expect these guys to walk in and guys and gals to walk in and be like, all right, I'm home. Yeah. Right. And <laughs> yeah. just settle right in. Right. Yeah. Matter of fact, that would probably be a little bit weird if they did. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. So. We have to um, create an environment mm -hmm. where we are thoughtful about what their needs are. Yeah. So I, I really appreciate what you're saying there about uh, helping them feel comfortable, mm -hmm. having a person-to-person -person conversation and yep. just being, uh, I'm a human being, you're a human being, we're mm -hmm. going to connect, yeah. and you're going to be comfortable so that you can grow and learn yep. in this space. Yeah. You know. And, I, and I think thinking back to the people who made the biggest impact on me, weren't the people who big balled me. It was the people who took the time and invested in me yeah. and gave a shit because yeah. they could see that I gave a shit. Right. So, yeah, that's huge, man. So w let me ask you, let me ask you this. This is kind of a, uh, maybe this is a hard question. <laughs> What's one piece of advice, leadership advice or, or just life advice or whatever. What's one piece of leadership advice or advice that has been worthless to you. <laughs> worthless to me. Um, I, I think it's uh, trying to impress the boss too much. And I, I, I wouldn't say it's ever been explicitly told to me like, hey, make sure you impress your boss. Um, but there's definitely leaders who I've had who that's been their primary focus is the perception of their performance from their boss. And I do think there's a lot of value in knowing the expectations of your boss. And that's a big component of being a leader and being uh, the face of an organization. Uh, but I think if you're so fixated on what 
you what you need to do for your boss, you start losing sight of what we talked about earlier with um, your subordinates and what's best for them. There's a fine balance there. And there's some times where you might have to go toe to toe with your supervisor to make sure that you are still voicing the concerns and you're keeping out, looking out for the best interests of your soldiers. Um, and then some of the, the worst examples of leadership I've, I've, I've encountered um, have been people who are subject matter experts they're outstanding doctrinally they know their stuff but they let the the people beneath them the subordinates fall to the wayside mm-hmm. um so from the outside looking in um the, the organization looks fantastic because they're shaking all the hands and kissing all the babies and they they look really good but then on the inside there's turmoil because everyone's unhappy so i think and that might be a little ambiguous to to the the question but um that's Seeing that style, that's the opposite direction I've always tried to go is always try to be grounded back to finding that balance with what's best for your organization, what for your subordinates, and what's also going to make sure you're accomplishing the mission for your supervisor. I like that. So let me flip the question. What's the most valuable piece of advice you've been given? Um, and I mentioned this earlier, but I, I think it, it's probably the um, – the best leaders make the best followers because I think that's always given me the ability to flip those roles simultaneously and be able to, um, again, going back to the word empathy, is uh, empathizing with the role, whether it's me being a leader asking someone to do something for me or me being a subordinate being told they need to do something um, because I want to be able to understand the impact it has on both and be able to support both. Um, And that's been really valuable. Um, And then don't make the same mistakes twice as I think been just a really, really beneficial one like we talked about earlier. Yeah, you can apply that in any corner, of, any corner of your yeah, life. Anything. Yeah, you best be, you best know that I never came home and talked to my wife like she was a private. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Again, yeah. <laughs> I learned that lesson. Yeah. Uh, hey, so, so we started this conversation talking a little bit about your fitness mm-hmm. journey, and I'm curious um, how your training and has has evolved as you've gotten a little bit older and mm-hmm. as you've um, become a firefighter and, and, yeah. and found your objectives are maybe a little bit different. Yeah. So how has your, how has it changed for you? Drastically. <laughs> say more, uh, say more about that. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I remember the first time I put turnout gear on. Um, so we we'll rewind a little bit. So I remember the first time working out with the fire department, we started doing like the, the combines type training where they test your deadlift and your squats and mm. the beep tests and stuff like that. Um, and having the military background and the sports background and the competition background, I was smoking all that and I actually tested into the top ability group for the skills course. I had never worn turnouts before. And then on my first skills course, I completely fell apart. I was thinking, I'm going to crush this, you know, like physically, like I've never, like that has never been an issue for me is like, that's not been the component I've worried about. And I sucked at working in turnouts. I had my ass handed to me. Mm-hmm. I went from like ability group one to like the bottom of the barrel. Um, and then, it was, it took a while to be able to actually like figure out, I'm like, hey, what, what am I doing wrong? Like outside of turnouts, I can go all day. I can lift strong. I'm strong for my body weight, but why can't I work in turnouts? Um, and I was, I was too skinny for one. I, <laughs> I, um, I think especially in the fire department, having a little bit of extra weight behind you. Um, cause I'm a short guy. I'm, I'm five, eight to where when I'm five, eight, one fifty, everything's heavy to me. Um, and so I kind of bulked up a little bit, um, while try, still trying to keep that endurance aspect. And I, I found that I wasn't having to work as hard to do the same task when I had a little bit of weight and muscle behind me. Um, and then the diet thing, there's not much room for the, do- the old way I used to diet, the, the microwave meals every three hours and the shred mode, um, because you're that just not conducive with the station life and then my days off and the lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, so the ways I've adapted my training now is I still focus a lot on the, the heavy lifts. Um, I focus a lot more on, um, interval training, um, and then the every minute on the minute type thing. Um, and then the diet, I've just tried to simplify it to where instead of, I have to have exactly this many carbs, this many pro this many grams of protein a day. Um, I just have simple rules where it's like, you know, limit the alcohol, limit the sugar, try not to skip meals. Um, and then just in general, you know, what's good and what's bad. Make sure there's more good than bad. (laughs) Nice. I love, I love that, man, because I think that it's important to, uh, have a balanced life Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, there's a time and a season for all things. And then some of those things that these, the austere preparation that goes into the, those yeah. kind of competitions is, 
not really sustainable mm-hmm. in every aspect of your life. When you yeah. get into certain, uh, you know, you talked about the, the station life and all mm-hmm. that. And man, at a certain point, you just got to have a, you know, got to have a, uh, uh, you know, bowl of green chili yeah. and you can't be worrying <laughs> about your macros. You, know? yeah. <laughs> you just yeah. got to eat yeah. um, because you're, you know, on your 10th call of the day and you're barely getting dinner in and yeah. you know, that kind of thing. Like there's yeah. so these variables that make it really challenging. Yeah. Um, not saying it's impossible, just saying right. what's realistic and sustainable. Yep. And uh, it's important to be kind to yourself and give yourself some latitude yeah. in some of those circumstances, yep. right? Yep. Um, but I like that you had some simple rules for yourself. I think that's important mm-hmm. to maintaining just gentle boundaries for yourself and yeah. keep yourself in the box. Especially for, for dieting, too. I think people lose sight of a diet shouldn't be something that's a short-term thing. A diet should something it's it's supposed to be sustainable for the potentially for the rest of your life. Like, can you eat like this all the time or are you so miserable doing it that it's only going to last as long as you have the motivation to do it and then it's just going to fall off. And I think right. especially a lot of the fad diets and the people who don't have as much experience with the uh, diet and exercise too, they'll have mm-hmm. like dramatic results because they'll do something dramatic um, and then they're surprised when they regress back to where right. they were or worse. Right. So. Yeah. So. What's let's uh, we're, we'll pull this to a close. We're at an hour. What um, what's one piece of advice that you would give to eighteen-year-old Eric if you had him in the room today? Uh, don't be weird. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say just uh, in, in embrace the challenges ahead um, because the leadership side of things. Like I, I feel like uh, everything that's been difficult that I've experienced has it's like forging iron like I feel like have made me the certain type of leader I am or have given me the experience to handle things a certain way um, so even when I've gotten like you know my ass kicked into the ground um, like I said I felt like I wasn't a very successful stationary firefighter that gave me like the fire to look at myself and analyze and improve um, and so I think embracing those hardships and then being able to adapt to them there's a everything happens for a reason. Um, and being able to understand that it might not make sense at the time, why things are really not going my way. There's a, there's an outcome, a different version of myself on the other side that is worthwhile going through it for. Man, that's a great place to pull it to a close. <laughs> Eric, thanks brother. It's good. Thank you. Here. I appreciate Always it. Always good chat with you. Absolutely. Thank you. That's all we have for today, folks. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks, Eric, for being my guest today. If you are enjoying the Fireground Fitness Podcast, go to whatever platform you listen to, subscribe, go to Apple Podcasts, rate and review the podcast, Spotify, rate and review, whatever. If you don't like the podcast, if you do like the podcast, either way, shoot me some feedback. You can reach me at Gray at firegroundfitness.com. Give us your feedback. That's the only way that we can make this project better to serve you more fully. In the meantime... Take the lessons you've learned today. Go on out there. Apply them in your lives. And get after it. Go on now. Get some.